Welcome to the SSPX Podcast. During this week, we are revisiting five lectures given by Father Daniel Thiemann, the rector of Holy Cross Seminary in Australia, about the history of the Society of St. Pius X. These were given on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the SSPX in November 2020. Today's lecture is the fifth in the series, which looks at the more recent history of the SSPX, covering the past 20 years from 2000 to 2020. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. So today, dear faithful, we will conclude our story of the history of the society, our little series of sermons on that story. The last time we spoke about the the 1990s, that, that decade. And so today, to conclude, we will speak about the year 2000 up until the, the present time, only being able to focus uh, on a few things, but nevertheless, uh, we will conclude our story in that way. You may remember, some of you, that in the year 2000, the society organized a pilgrimage to Rome, which was attended by, by hundreds of priests and, and sisters and about 5,000 of the faithful. It was an, a very impressive uh, and very beautiful occasion, which created quite an impression uh, on the, the people of Rome and the, the authorities of the church. And um, soon after that pilgrimage, the authorities of the church uh, made contact with the society, which obviously things had been quite distant, if you will, during the, the 1990s, this decade after the Episcopal consecrations. And so uh, Rome makes this overture towards the society and the superiors of the society, they meet and discuss the question and they decide that they will ask for two conditions, which will be uh, preconditions for resuming these discussions. And the, uh, the first would be the liberty of the mass so that Rome would admit that any priest of the Latin Rite is free to say the traditional Mass. That would be uh, a gesture, not only of good faith, but also a, uh, a great benefit for the Church as a whole. So that is the first condition. The second being that Rome would uh, admit that the excommunications leveled against Archbishop Lefebvre, Bishop Castromeyer, and the four bishops in 1988 would admit that those excommunications are null and void. That's in 2001 that those two conditions are put down. In 2006, so five years later, uh, an, an interesting event happens, uh, which we often forget about, but in any case, in 2006, uh, Rome finally, uh, after so many years, admitted that in the translations of the words of consecrations, that the words promultis, which we have in, in the words of consecration of the of vocalis, that that must be translated as for many and not for all. I do not know uh, your degree of Latin knowledge, but I don't think much Latin knowledge is required to know that the word multis means many and not all. Uh, of course, our Lord did shed his blood for all men. However, our Lord did not say in instituting the Blessed Sacrament for all because he meant not to express that he was for whom he was shedding his blood for 
uh, in general, which was indeed for all, but he meant to express how many would be benefiting actually, who would actually have that blood applied to their soul by responding to the redemption of our Lord, which unfortunately is not all, but many. So Rome finally admits what so many people had been saying for years, that pro multis does mean for many. The following year, 2007, on the 7th of July, so if you will, 7707, good way to remember, um, Benedict XV issues Sumorum Pontificum, which does do uh, exactly what we had asked, and in fact, uh, quite remarkably so. So the Tridentine Mass is not only given its liberty, but it is declared by the Pope that in fact it was never abolished, which is an extraordinary, uh, although quite honest, no more than what honesty demands, it is an extraordinary admission because how many priests have been persecuted for the last 30 or more years for their attachment to the traditional mass under the false uh, supposition that the old mass had been abolished. And so by Sumorum Pontificum, Rome admits that the old mass has never been abolished. It's also interesting to see that unlike the, uh, the indult of the 1980s, where Rome pretended that you needed special permission to celebrate the traditional mass and that you would only have this special permission if you admitted that the new mass was also legitimate, which is something we would not admit. Uh, no such condition is attached to the Samorum Pontificum document. So you don't have to recognize the legitimacy of the new mass in order to be able to celebrate the old. Nothing like that is said precisely because the old mass was never abolished. So it is a, uh, a consistent uh, admission of the facts. In 2009, Rome withdraws the excommunications from the four bishops. Unfortunately, no mention of Archbishop Lefebvre, Bishop de Castromayer is made, but the decree of excommunication is withdrawn from the four bishops, which is not exactly what we had asked for. Nevertheless, it is quite uh, nevertheless significant because as I mentioned in a previous sermon, the bishops were not doing anything differently in 2009 than we had been doing since 1988. So if these four bishops did not deserve to be excommunicated in 2009, implicitly they did not deserve to be so in 1988. Furthermore, it is an admission, implicit nevertheless, uh, an admission that the society is not in schism because you cannot withdraw an excommunication from someone who is in fact in schism because that is in itself a cause for excommunication. It's not the only admission that Rome had made. Cardinal Hoyos, even before in 2005, had admitted that society was not in schism. For that matter, even Pope Francis has admitted the society is not in schism. So that is a matter which should be put to rest at this point. Although unfortunately, some enemies of the society still try to, to brandish that argument. So in 2009, again that same year, the society opens uh, doctrinal discussions with the Roman authorities to, to try to show the Roman authorities what is wrong with the church, with, with the, the teachings of Vatican II and, and since Vatican II. 
And these discussions last from the end of 2009 until April of 2011. No agreement is reached because uh, Rome is not convinced uh, of the truth of what we are saying, and we are certainly not convinced of the truth of what they are saying. Um, so no conclusion is reached. Nevertheless, it must be said that these discussions do bring the doctrinal issues into the fore. There are bishops, there are theologians who are following the discussions, and a certain visibility is given to these issues. And many bishops and theologians begin to see, it's those of goodwill, those who are honest, who are seeing the crisis in the church and want to understand why there's this crisis, they do begin to see that the society might indeed have a point. And nowadays, it's not all that difficult to find at least some bishops and theologians who are quite willing to say that the society has a point. And it's quite possible that the beginning of that movement begins with these doctrinal discussions that did place the issues in the, to the, give, it brought it to the attention, if you will, of, of bishops and theologians of goodwill. The doctrinal discussions do not issue into any sort of agreement and ultimately no framework for the society's operations is uh, established. At the end of the day, at the end of all the discussions, Pope Benedict XVI still insisted that as a condition for an operational framework for the society, a canonical structure, that the society admit that Vatican II has no errors in it, that Vatican II is perfectly traditional, which of course we're not willing to admit, and also the Pope asked that we admit that the new mass is legitimate, which we also do not admit. We do not admit that a mass, a rite of mass at least, which was designed with the help of non-Catholics to obscure the truths of the faith and which quite obviously has done precisely that. It's done precisely what it was designed to do. We do not admit that such a rite of mass is legitimate. And so at the end of the day, no framework for the society was established. Nevertheless, what we do notice from this brief sketch of these, let's say this 11-year, this 12-year period, is quite interesting. Because the Roman authorities admitted three things during this, this period. They admitted that what the society had always said about the traditional mass was true, that it had never been abolished. Rome admitted as well that what the society had always said about the words of consecration for many does not mean for all, and our Lord did know what he was saying when he instituted the words of consecration. The society was right about that as well. Society had always said that they were not schismatic, and it turns out that Rome admits the society was right about that as well. So what we can pull from these, these different observations is that it should be obvious, it should be obvious, however tragic it may be, it should be obvious that the Roman authorities, when they give a judgment in a certain matter, at least in this time, these times, cannot be followed as a matter of course. It would be normal in ordinary times, obviously, when Rome says, well, this person is schismatic, 
that we believe them and say, yes, this person is schismatic. It would be quite normal if Rome says the words of consecration are this, that we say, okay, the words of consecration are that. Or if Rome says a particular rite of mass has this or that legal standing in the church today, that we would accept that as true. It is quite obvious, even to someone who does not agree with us, that if Rome has admitted that the society was correct on these three issues, that it cannot be taken for granted that when Rome, in this current time of crisis, gives a decision, that it should simply be followed as a matter of course. And that is a terrible tragedy for the church. We would certainly want to live in a time when Rome can be followed as a matter of course. But if it is a tragedy to live in a time of crisis, it is a far greater tragedy to live in a time of crisis and not to know it, not to recognize it. So it is an important point that I think we can make to, to our friends of, of goodwill, let's say those, those Catholics who, who don't agree with us, who perhaps are able to recognize when someone like Pope Francis makes outrageous comments, they do recognize that, but nevertheless, they don't agree with our stance on things and they think we should be more docile uh, and, and, and give in to what Rome asks us. Well, Rome has already admitted that we were right about these three very important points. And where would, where would the church be today if the society had closed its eyes to the reality of the situation and simply said, well, if the Pope is saying it, it must be true, even though it's clearly not true. Where would even our conservative critics be today if the society had simply given in and closed its eyes to the reality of the situation? And it's an, it's an interesting point because with all goodwill and patience and charity, it's important to realize that even our conservative critics would not have the liberty to be what they are, conservative critics, if the society had followed their advice and simply followed Rome as a matter of course. Their model of dealing with the situation to be conservative and yet still follow Rome as a matter of course, cannot be used in these times. And the existence of our conservative critics is as much a proof, the continued existence of conservative critics is as much a proof of that fact as our continued existence is. Another thing that we can point out, another aspect of this same observation is that the society's work and the society's stance and the society's insistence on certain things is for the good of the whole church. It is something that we can see clearly even now, already we can see clearly. The fact that Rome has had to admit certain things which are true and which, because they had admitted it, are actually doing good in the church, that the society's insistence and existence is for the good of the whole church. We are not a private club of people with conservative instincts and a refined liturgical taste. 
We are a religious congregation and, and we are faithful who are working for the good of the whole church. That was certainly the archbishop's vision. The archbishop was not undertaking at age 65 such a burdensome labor because it was a kind of hobby for him. It was a work he was willing to undertake for the good of the church. And for that matter, anything that God raises up, any work that God raises up, which is a work of God and a work of the church, is for the good of the whole church. Because we are citizens of the kingdom of God on earth. The Catholic Church is the kingdom of God on earth, and there are no private enterprises in the kingdom of God. God's works are for the sake of his kingdom, and good Catholics live good lives for the sake of the whole church. And so my friends, although it is often said, and, I, and truly, of course, it is often said that the society serves the church by being faithful to its mission, by guarding the treasures that we have for the good of the church, because those treasures, the mass, the true teaching, the true catechism, the true moral teaching, the true spirituality, these are not treasures of the society, they're the treasures of the church. And we guard them for the sake of the whole church. While that is true, I would like to leave you with a further thought, and that is that the society will serve the church better and better by living according to the treasures that it guards, living more fully, more completely, according to the, the treasures that it guards. Because which of us can say that we have made full use, taken full advantage of the great opportunities that God has given to us, which God has not given to everyone. Which of us can say that we have done that? And if God seems surprisingly inactive, of course it only seems so, but it does seem so as we see the church going from bad to worse, perhaps it is this that he is waiting for that those who are his friends and his servants, those who do understand the importance of fidelity, will put the treasures of the church more at the center of their lives. That will put the service of God and growth and holiness as their highest priority, as their great ambition in life. And I would say then we will have vocations. When we commit to live more consistently according to the treasures by the treasures that we guard. If you've ever read the biography of St. Edmund Campion, very, very inspiring biography by Evelyn Waugh, St. Edmund Campion, a, mission, a missionary, he dies a missionary to his own country. So he's an English priest, a convert, but an English priest who goes to preach the gospel again and to serve the Catholics living under the persecution of the Protestant Queen Elizabeth. It's a very, very inspiring story. And, and there are a lot of parallels between his story and ours because the Catholics of England had, not in exactly the same way, but nevertheless, had had their Catholic life stolen from them. 
and they had to hold on to the treasures that they still possessed with the help of the priests who still remained and who still ministered to them under great difficulty and danger. But there's a little line in this, in this biography of St. Edmund Campion when St. Edmund Campion finally makes the decision that he's not going to sit on the fence anymore between Anglicanism and Catholicism. He's, he's going to make a stand and he's going to sacrifice indeed everything he'd worked for, his reputation, his livelihood. He's going to take a stand and he's going to go to the seminary. He's going to cast his lot with the church of God. He was very much inspired by the priests and seminarians among whom he lived because it was clear to him and he admitted it to his shame. It was clear to him that for these people, the religion of Christ, the Catholic faith was not a fad and it was not a sentiment and it was not a mere dry moral obligation. It was their entire life and hope. It was what gave their life meaning. And that is what we need because it is not enough today to have a sort of simple ambition, to, to want to be an average Catholic or an average priest. There is unfortunately not much difference nowadays between fidelity and heroism. And so although we might prefer to be merely an average Catholic or an average priest, in today's times, we either have to be much more than that, or unfortunately, like so many others today, we will be much less than that. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening to and watching the SSPX Podcast. More is available at sspxpodcast.com. Please don't forget to share this episode and the podcast itself with someone who you think might enjoy it. Until next time, thank you for listening, and God bless you.